0: Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Maffedon. Thanks for tuning in. On Wednesday, feminists came together at Simmons College for the 25th Annual International Women's Day Breakfast to honor the strong women who came before and show the world that they will always stand up for their rights. For the 25th year in a row, people of the Commonwealth honored International Women's Day. The real treat was gathering in person for the first time in two years. Wednesday's conversation touched on feminism, gender inequalities, and the strides women have made in the past 25 years. We have a strong and
1: growing network of trailblazers and innovators, women with experience and leadership and courage and candor who have fought battles not only for themselves and this generation, but to ensure that the next generation will have fewer battles to fight. We have a community one where we don't need to explain or justify our presence, but where we can count on being supported and recognized, understood, celebrated, and inspired by each other. This is a community driven by a shared sense of responsibility to bring about a brighter, bolder, and more equitable future.
0: Despite the sisterhood and joyful nature of the morning's breakfast, panelists were mindful about the language used when we talk about the holiday.
1: In Latin America, we don't use the word celebration because the history of our history, you know, our struggle
2: is connected with a lot of blood, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. And here too, uh, we use the word commemoration because we need to honor all these women who
1: died fighting for for systemic changes. Not just here in the, you know in, in New
2: York, right? but the ones that were fighting in Latin America, in Africa, in many other countries that sometimes are invisible.
0: In the United States, women have fought for their rights since the founding of this country. And the road to gender equality is still a treacherous one. Even now, women continue to rise up against workplace discrimination, reproductive rights setbacks, and the gender pay gap, hurting their livelihood and their ability to thrive.
2: It impacts the economy. Women are heads of households. So if, if a man is making 100 cents on a dollar and a white
0: woman is only making 82 cents on the dollar, then somebody's taking 20, you know, 18 cents every hour out of your pay. And so the disparity is trillions of dollars in the, na- in the national and international economy because it's not just a um, United States issue, it's an international issue. So when women are not treated equally, then their families are not getting equal benefits. And that's something we
2: all need to work and can change.
0: But it can't just be women who advocate for their rights. Creating a community of feminists that cuts across race, class, and sex is a key component to achieving gender equality. Equity is, is important. Um, I know we've had many allies fight beside us when it comes to closing the gap on reproductive justice, menstrual justice, and even closing the gender-racial pay gap. All of these things impact everyone because if one group does not have access or um, the fair, um, the fair chance to um, achieve some of these things or have access to them, that's what um, the coalition building is all about. Radical women who refuse to play nice made change. There's no time to behave. There's still more to do. Continuing the Honor Women's History Month, we join the Freedom Trail Revolutionary Women Tour to explore four centuries of Boston's bold and influential women. Meet Hannah Mather Crocker, a revolutionary woman born on June 27, 1752 in Roxbury.
1: I was about 22 years old when the Revolutionary War came to Boston. And I helped out as a nurse in the Battle of Bunker Hill. I actually smuggled military intelligence out of the city when it was under siege, so I would hide those letters in the bosom of my dress where I knew the British officers wouldn't be able to search for it. In fact, once I was actually stopped as I was leaving the city and an officer asked me to declare any contraband, and I said, sir, you may search my trunks, but do you dare to storm my breastworks?
0: Clearly, we were in good hands as Hannah took us through the storied streets of downtown Boston, giving us a glimpse of what it was like for her and women of her time.
1: In the 1800s, a lot of the stories we talk about will be in a time that women cannot participate legally in public life. You know, they don't have the right to vote. Often they don't have the right to control their own property. But women are still finding ways to make their voices heard as authors, as public speakers, as advocates for women's suffrage, but also as advocates for other causes, abolitionism and civil rights.
0: The Boston Common, a local treasure, was once a place of persecution. The playground where children now play was formerly Boston's gallows, where many women were executed in the 1600s and 1700s for charges of witchcraft. As we continued our walk, we learned of more female resistance. Defiant women were commonly exiled. Anne Hutchinson was the first woman in Massachusetts Bay Colony exiled on the count of heresy, simply because she had the audacity to interpret the Bible for herself.
1: After church, a bunch of women go to Anna Hutchinson's house where they read the Bible together and they form their own opinions about it. And they sometimes even criticize what the male church authorities are saying.
0: At the State House, we came upon the statue of Mary Dyer, a fierce Quaker and follower of Anne Hutchinson, who repeatedly defied the state's banishment and was consequently hanged the eighth time. But it wasn't all doom and gloom for women. Lucy Stone wielded her power by holding on to her maiden name, inspiring many others.
1: She was actually a really early advocate of women not changing their last name when they got married because she believed that changing her last name was the legal annihilation of the woman, To love as a phrase. <laughs> um, so she went her whole life by Lucy Stone, which was her maiden name. She was also an advocate for women's rights to dress how they wanted. This was a point in time that women wearing pants or bloomers in public was still seen as public indecency.
0: Park Street Church, just across the street from the Commons, served as a meeting house for female abolitionists, such as Lydia Marie Child and Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which opened the nation's eyes to the evil of slavery. Walkers had a chance to reflect on some of their favorite women from the past.
1: I would have to say Phyllis Wheatley. A lot of people would say that's kind of basic, but I think she was just, you know, being an African American enslaved woman that knew how to read and just wrote such excellent poetry, and also just, um, you know, she just, she was a big stepping stone for a lot of African American women, I would say.
0: At Omni Parker House, we learned of one of its most famous residents, Charlotte Cushman,
1: and how being a lesbian was advantageous in maintaining her power. In the 1800s, there was this phrase of Boston marriage, which referred to Henry James's novel, The Bostonians, which was a story about two unmarried women who lived together and shared finances, and for all intents and purposes, basically behaved as a husband and wife. Um, And so this sort of financial arrangement and this sort of romantic arrangement between women was actually very common in Boston in the 1800s for independently wealthy women to, rather than marrying a man, which would force them to lose control of their own property, to instead enter a sort of not legally recognized marriage with another woman.
0: We heard so many amazing stories as we walked the paths of strong women from the past. It's important that we know women are revolutionary all the time. Many thanks to our guide, Mahita Bell, who illuminated the life of prolific writer Hannah Mather Crocker. The revolutionary women tours depart from the Boston Common Visitor Information Center on Saturdays and Sundays throughout March at 10.45 a.m. For more information, thefreedomtrail.org. It was a showcase of bright young minds at Boston Public Schools 77th Annual Boston Citywide Region 6 Science, Technology, Engineering and Math or STEM Fair on Saturday. The event took flight at Northeastern's Curry Student Center as the next generation of STEM professionals got serious about science. Last Saturday, the scientific know-how and creativity of local Boston public school students were on display at Northeastern University. The 77th annual Boston Citywide STEM Fair featured projects of 77 BPS students from 12 middle schools and high schools. Students enjoyed the moment to shine as budding scientists as they shared the findings of their experiments and received feedback from teachers and members of the public.
1: Activities like the science fair today are great for um, STEM students because it allows them to explore things that they're curious about. They get to carry out experiments and analyze things that no one else knew, acting like real scientists. And that's a, a really powerful thing for students in a STEM classroom.
0: There's been an explosion of STEM positions in the last 30 years. Massachusetts holds the highest percentage of STEM jobs in the country at 17%. As the state adds more jobs in clean energy, IT, defense, and advanced manufacturing, providing students with a robust STEM education to take on these positions is essential. Massachusetts, the industry, is growing, and so we have to be able to fill those positions, and for kids to be proficient in that area is vital so making sure that our students particularly our black and brown students are proficient in the STEM field is vital for Massachusetts and the job growth there. So we're working really hard to ensure that all of our kids have access to STEM um, but also that they have access to high quality science instructional materials and that our teachers are trained so that they can ensure that students are proficient. We are continuing to grow as a diverse society, and to be inclusive of that growing, growing diversity in our, in our country requires that we train and equip all of our populations with the skills that are necessary to feed into our innovation economy. The universities have a deep commitment to working with our K-12 students, engaging them in science and engineering experiences, hosting events like this on our campuses, working with teachers to ensure that our students have an eye and a vision on the future. African Americans and Latinos are underrepresented in the STEM field and although women compose half the STEM workforce, their presence is woefully uneven across job types, particularly engineering and computer science. Events like the STEM fair give young girls and students of color the ability to envision a career in the world of science, technology, engineering, and math. Those who live without vision often have difficulty accessing reading materials suited for their needs. But thanks to passionate volunteers in the National Braille Press, Boston is bringing more braille books to young readers.
2: That's not my monkey. It's Feet are too smooth.
0: Last Thursday, the pages of 450 copies of the children's classic Paddington were rebounded with Braille lettering as part of Read Across America Day. The National Braille Press collaborated with Columbia Threadneedle Investments to make sure that everyone has access to reading materials and that the beauty of children's books is not lost on those without
1: vision. It's so important for what the, the Braille Press does uh, in terms of providing access, uh, Braille material, for, for the, uh, uh, the blindness community to sharing the experiences that you and I have shared with in terms of reading the great novels, uh, to reading comic books, to reading technology books, learning how to use your iPhone. Uh, I mean, these are just day-to-day things we take for granted. Uh, but if you walk into a library, you won't find Braille material. And that's why the Braille, what the Braille Press does is so important in being able to provide those uh, with material uh, to, to basically, it's part of
0: life. They plan to continue the project in order to fill Boston's libraries with a larger selection of Braille books.
1: Calculus those without
0: with them vision them. are often forgotten in discussions about equity in education the and community engagement but they're just as interested in reading as sighted people.
2: It's the same as as reading with your hands and reading Braille is the same as a sighted person reads with their eyes, except we're doing it with our fingers. So it's important for us to be able to enjoy children's books, be able to go to school and be educated, textbooks, tests, or pleasure reading or cookbooks or technology books. So it's a great way to build independence by being empowered by the knowledge you gain from books, and a blind person can only do that by reading Braille. Thirty volunteers cut the print books
0: apart at the spine and inserted an identical text in Braille on transparent plastic sheets followed by rebounding the books in both print and Braille so that both blind and sighted people can read together.
1: We're here today collating books for people that don't have vision, um, and I feel fortunate to be here volunteering for that. I have two young girls at home um, and, and reading, and books are such a critical, important part of our lives. I feel really lucky to be able to bring these books to life for people that don't have vision.
0: The project is part of the Children's Braille Book Club, where every month, Editors at the National Braille Press choose a popular, classic, or seasonally appropriate children's book to print in Braille. Young people are invited to get creative with expressing their feelings about emotional health by participating in the Mental Health Matters Student Expression Contest. Some of the topics they can address include why mental health is so important, how to take care of your mental health, and sharing strategies and tips with other students. Participants can submit video, artistic skill, or writing to the contest for consideration. Both individuals and teams are welcome to take part in the contest. Submissions and questions can be sent to Maddie Brogan at mamh.org. COVID clinics are back, this time in the North End and Charleston on March 11th and March 14th. Gift cards and a raffle for Celtics tickets are available, and people of all ages are welcome, although pediatric patients must be registered with Mass General Brigham. To book an appointment at the North End location, viewers can call 617 643 8,000. To book an appointment at the Charlestown location, the number is 857-238-1100. For more information, you can visit newhealthcenter.org. Joe Quintanilla is the Vice President of Development and Major Gifts at the National Braille Press Association. For over 16 years, he's been in the fundraising space with a special focus on organizations for the blind and visually impaired. Joe has lived with blindness for his whole life, yet his story shows us that nothing is impossible, and disability is just a new type of ability. Joe joined us in studio to talk about disparities in literacy within the blind community and how the national braille press is evolving with the times enjoy the interview I'd love to begin with the National Braille Press. So it's been around in Boston for quite some time and has evolved greatly since its early beginnings as a weekly newspaper. Can you take us through a little bit of the history of the organization and um, what are its motivations and goals today?
2: Sure, well, 96 years ago next week on St. Patrick's Day in 1927, National Bell Press was founded. Um, in fact, this is our 75th year in the Fenway neighborhood where we're currently located. But the story of National Bell Press is uh, is a great one. Uh, an Italian immigrant named Francis Iardi, who is blind, was uh, brought to the United States when he was a, a young boy. And after graduating from Perkins... Um, all the uh, even though he was very well educated, the only work that he could find was shining shoes. Mm. And a lot of his customers realized how bright and intelligent he was, and wanted to find a way that he could do something beyond shining shoes. So they asked him, you know, what, what do you want to do? And he said, well, you know, blind people don't get the news. Uh, I'd like to start a newspaper for the blind. And with uh, support from some of his customers he was able to start the organization. And so our original goal was to be a newspaper, as you said earlier, but it's evolved into being able to produce braille materials for blind children and adults from textbooks in elementary school, high school, grad school, uh, college level, to self-help books, uh, cookbooks, technology guides. So we're not just a braille producer, but we're also a publisher. We make books for blind people to learn how to use Facebook or how to use technology that would help identify objects or items for them to help you know provide independence, how to use an iPhone, how to use Twitter. <laughs> uh, a lot of these things that you know the sighted world is using blind people have access to through technology, and they should learn how to use it as well. Um, we also started in uh, 1983 a children's braille book club, so a book of the month club, yeah. where families receive a book, a mainstream book that their their kids peers are reading together. And what was unique about this book club is that it is a print and braille format, so the print page- pages are overlaid uh, on the braille so that a blind parent could read with a sighted child or a sighted parent could read with a blind child and really have that joy of reading together. I think you know, many of us might remember um, learning to read and, and sitting on a parent's lap and, and reading that favorite book as a child. Mm-hmm. So we want blind families to have that same experience.
0: Thank you, that's incredible. And uh, as you were saying, you focus a lot on um, literacy, particularly for for children. Uh, How significant is the disparity in access to braille books? And how does that affect the the literacy of blind individuals?
2: Unfortunately, um, the disparity is is quite large. Um, In in the state of Massachusetts, there are probably about 40,000 audio books recorded and about a tenth of that put into Braille. Uh, the big challenge is the cost and the labor involved and the quali- the, the paper um, and unfortunately school systems and and, and and local governments and cities and towns prefer to go the easy route, not the best route um, for a blind child. So. Um, If a blind child is physically capable of reading, uh, by law, they should have Braille as a skill that should be taught, um, because it's the same as teaching a sighted person how to read. Listening to books are different than reading books with your hands. Uh, When you're reading Braille, the visual cortex of the brain is functioning just as when someone sighted is reading with their eyes, and you're actively learning, you're actively engaged in the material. When you're listening to a book, you're passively learning. And I think that most of us would uh, agree that if you were to ask a sighted person, would you want your child to go through school just by listening, the answer would be no. Mm. So unfortunately, because of uh, economics and and just not uh, comprehending that a blind person needs the same access as a sighted person, Um, there's that barrier of being able to get braille materials into the hands of blind children or adults. And, you know, we do our effort um, by being a braille producer, um, being able to make braille affordable. Uh, The money we raise uh, helps cover the difference. It generally costs three times more to put a book into braille, make a book in braille, Mm -hmm. than it does in print. And so we raise money to cover that difference because we believe a blind person shouldn't have to pay more for the same information that's available in print. Now if you have a blind student in the college system generally those universities do a much better job um, in making sure that that student might have uh, the book or the syllabus uh, put into braille and they contract with us to do it. And so the universities are doing a a relatively good job from that end. The the catch with that is that it takes time to produce in braille so to have a professor Uh, determine two months ahead of class beginning when uh, what the material is going to be is quite a challenge Mm. so we usually get uh, this book needs to be put in braille we need it next week (laughs) so that's that's the challenge but um, it it really is a a staggering that uh, not enough blind children or adults read braille and in part is because it's it's thought that well, technology speaks to you, or you can talk technology. We don't need to give you a book. Here's an iPad, and you can listen to them.
0: Wow! And what are the steps of putting a book into braille, and how long does that process usually take?
2: So it can it, it can take anywhere for, uh, to, from three weeks to a month, depending on what the what the book is and how many copies we're making. So ideally, the first step is that we would get an electronic file of the book from the publisher so that we would then have our transcription department take that file of the text of the book and turn it into a braille code with software called Duxbury Braille Translator. But sadly, not a lot of publishers want to do that or like to do that, even though by law, they should be willing to do that and and we have every right to have access to that material. Mm -hmm. Um, So what happens most of the time is that our production team uh, will do what we call uh, decollate So they'll rip out the spine of the book and then scan page by page in an optical scanner and then run it through that software that I mentioned, the Duxbury Braille Translator, then turn it into a braille code. Once they've done that, it goes to our transcription department who are made up of blind individuals who are proficient braille readers and are akin to copy editors. So they're looking for um, a, they're listening to a digital recording of the print of what's in the book, and it'll say what's italicized, what's in punctuation, what's in quotations, and we'll we'll do a braille a draft of it, um, and they will listen to the digital recording and compare with what's in the, the braille, and if there's something missing in the braille, they'll make an error sheet if there's something in the braille that doesn't exist in the the print. They'll make an error sheet. They'll send it back to transcription to make any updates that might be necessary. Mm -hmm. Then it goes to our press machines. And we have some press machines that are 60 years old, the Heidelberg ink presses, Mm. that were turned into being the press and Braille. We also have more modern uh, Braille uh, embossers. Um, And so those will go through our press department. And once they come out, we'll have our collating department assemble the book and what they'll do is they'll basically stack all the pages in the book and corresponding uh, sequence. Uh, then it gets bound um, and uh, it gets sent to proofreading to do one more check. This is more of a, a faster, they'll just look at the page numbers generally okay. to make sure that it makes sense. And uh, then the hardcover titles, pages are on there and voila.
0: If we transition to the digital age where we're consuming so much online, um, how is National Braille Press adapting to these challenges of digital consumption?
2: Well, one of the things that's really important um, is that we, we make sure that our website and our online bookstore is accessible with screen readers for blind people to be able to purchase books or navigate our, uh, our bookstore online. So anyone who has a, a business or an online website, it really uh, would be great if you make your website accessible with screen readers. Um, The other thing is uh, we make sure it's accessible for people who are using uh, Braille note takers. And what a Braille note taker is is basically uh, a computer, but instead of a screen, it has uh, electronic Braille or refreshable Braille where the pins will pop up and create the Braille code on this panel of your device, and you can hit a toggle for the next line of Braille. Hmm. So we make sure that our website's functional for uh, a blind person to visit in that uh, in, on our website in any of those realms the other thing that we've done uh, over the years is we make more books available um, through electronic braille or Braille files so that someone who has a Braille note taker um, can store it on their computer on their computer or their note taker instead of having um, you know a, a room full of boxes of books they can have a thousand books on this note taker and not take up as much space hmm. so we make a lot of digital uh, Braille books available to our community. Uh, During the pandemic, early stages, we made three books available to our community at no cost through digital braille downloads. And that was um, navigating healthcare when all they can see is that you can't. Um, So a book on how to advocate for yourself when you're blind and you're dealing with doctors or doctor's offices. um, A book on uh, dinner delivered um, obviously, being able to get food during the pandemic and getting to the store or the uh, challenge. Um, so, how you can use different apps uh, with your accessible technology to order your groceries or Uber Eats or DoorDash or those types of uh, items. And then for kids, uh, we did a book called Totally Silly Jokes uh, as a way to try to you know have kids be able to laugh during a time that was scary for so many of us hmm. uh, and be able to uh, still enjoy reading and, and laugh uh, and, and you know, experience laughter and, and joy.
0: Wonderful, and for our viewers who want to help support the work that's happening at National Braille Press, how can they do so? How can they volunteer their time?
2: So uh, people can come and visit for a tour. Uh, I think you would really enjoy it. It's, a, it's really fascinating uh, to see old and new technology come together to make Braille. Uh, we generally do a couple tours a month, uh, generally on Thursdays. Um, and then uh, we are always looking for volunteers to help put together books for us, usually twice a month as well, whether it's uh, with a community group or a corporate group or um, people sort of individually come, um, we will encourage people to help us. Um, Sometimes we're crunched and we need some extra hands Mm -hmm. to put these books together. Um, We also have events that people can help volunteer and work registration or be sighted guides. Um, And of course, people can always visit our website at nbp.org.
0: Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity channel 1072. You can also hear us on the radio Fridays at 6.30 and 9.30 p.m. and Monday through Thursday at 7.30 and 9.30 p.m. For BNN News, I'm Faith Mathedon. I'll see you next Friday.